Welcome to B2B Impact by BDB. Join me, Matt Smith, CEO of BDB, and Oliver Brewood, BDB's Head of Digital and Technology, as we get together to discuss the myriad of trends, topics, opportunities, and developments in the world of B2B marketing and communications. Our aim is to arm you with content, opinions, and insights that deliver lasting and meaningful impact across the B2B community, helping the global businesses and brands we partner with navigate their way through the information and communication revolution. Are you ready to make an impact? Hi everybody and welcome back to the B2B Impact podcast. Um, this week we're going to switch to the format slightly and touch on some topics, some stories, um, some things that have caught our eye this week across the B2B marketing mm-hmm. and I guess wider communications landscape as well. So, shall I kick us off with the first one on my list, Ollie, and then you can, we can flip in and out as we go. go. For it. Have you heard of or are you familiar with AI copywriting? Vaguely. Vaguely. Okay, so I've seen it, I've seen it referenced in a few different blogs this week, um, being kind of mooted already as something that potentially could uh, impact people's careers, people's paths, as AI and, um, I guess, learning technology gets better and better. Um, if you're not familiar with them, and these aren't paid advertising links, these are things like Smart Copy. There's one called Jasper that I've played with, where if, if you are struggling with, I guess, a copywriting block, or maybe you're not a natural writer, um, you can input quite limited criteria, maybe some keywords, um, a slight overview of what you want to discuss, and to an extent, press go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it starts self-writing a blog or a longer piece of copy for you. Yeah. So on simple terms, it sounds attractive. Yeah. Maybe, do you consider yourself a natural writer? Or for me, for no, me, I'm like something. No, I, I, um, I hate writing, to be honest. I get stuck trying to write things. And I feel like I'm usually quite happy with what I get out. Yeah. But it takes me nine times longer than other people to actually get to that point. Yeah. So it's, it's not something I've been that familiar with. And I think I only saw an example of this the other day. I've not played around with it like you have. So you yeah. can give me your kind of results of what you've found. But the example I saw is effectively that you put in a, a topic and kind of a summary for um, for kind of what you wanted to cover. Mm-hmm. And then off the back of that, it looked like it was spitting out um, what could be like introduction copy or potentially ad copy, that sort of thing. So it, like short snippets. It can of, do it across a variety of different areas and obviously different platforms and solutions have different stacks to it. But in the sense of, yeah, it can write, it says it can write ad copy. It says it can write introductory text, opening paragraphs, but then longer form content as well. I've not tested how long form it goes yet. Um, but I've had blogs of 500 words to 1,000 words on it so far. They need a pass-through. Um, they have things like Grammarly built into them for your spelling, punctuation, and grammar. They have different um, territorial nuances in terms of the languages and the spellings that are used. And it's also got, which I think is quite interesting, which is one of the key things, I guess, to focus on at the minute, kind of a plagiarism checker, hmm. which is something that you can pay a little bit extra for on the platforms. Because I guess ultimately that AI is pulling from existing content that exists on the web already. Mm -hmm. So the more sophisticated ones, the idea is that they're trawling content on the web. So let's just pick on last week's topic, the metaverse. If you were to type in a one to write something on what is the metaverse, it will trawl the web for existing content blogs around that subject and then rewrite um, very well, I will say. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure if um, our copywriters and grammar police got hold of it, they'd probably tear it to shreds. But as a first pass of something yeah. when you're struggling to get your creative juices flowing and craft something. Um, if this, again, similar to what we were saying last week, if this is early stage technology, you can appreciate where the potential yeah. of it could go. 
Yeah, like I said, I've not tried it yet. My suspicion, without having tried it, you've obviously seen more, mm. is that I wouldn't be surprised if it could churn out like an email subject line or like a bit of enticing ad copy mm. that might, uh, based on just what it's seen out there, might be pretty clickable for the audience that are seeing it. Yeah. I find it harder to believe that it would do a good job of writing something that I doesn't think, come across as... I think that's what's interesting about <laughs> the... Um... Well, you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. I'll say that to start with you. I was surprised at how good it was. Not perfect by any stretch, as you say. And I think one of the things I said offline to you earlier was it starts to get a bit repetitive in, in places where it's obviously pulling from the same articles. Mm. So it's not it's not a case of press go and post your blog. But for somebody like me who struggles with uh, just finding the right words, and I procrastinate over it for far too long, similar to what you were saying. Yeah, It's, some, it's a tool that with time and with further development, I can see how, why it would be of value to a lot of people, yeah. particularly in the game when you're trying to get volume of content out mm-hmm. and trying to craft content quickly, um, which again is most people probably content at the minute of you know how quickly and how much can you actually produce. Yeah, I mean, obviously, wherever we're at now with that sort of technology, it's only going to get better to mm-hmm. the point where at some point we won't need the people to write it at all. It'll just be the computer wrote it. Mm-hmm. But the only flip side of that, I would say, which I assume they would argue is picked up in the AI. But if me and you both used it, Jasper or Smart Copies, the one that I saw in the blog the other day, hmm. and we both write, we want to write about the metaverse. Does yeah, how similar is it going to be? How similar is the, yeah. So I don't, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the answer. And you can have tone of voice issues then if you want to come across as playful and I want to come across which, as really authoritative. Which you can set. Okay. So you can, you, can, you can tweet tone of voice, you can tweet length. Um, it has tone of voice in terms of whether you want to be authoritative, whether you want to be playful, whether you want to Joe Rogan's one of the things you can pick on, on Jasper as an example to kind of um, adopt that kind of more feisty tone of voice, I guess. So you can tweak it, but I still like a question at the minute. Yeah. Uh, the level of difference, the level of difference you'd get across different users, I guess. But yeah. something I guess it's, it's definitely not putting your spin on it. So if you're obviously a company that's got a particular angle or take on a subject, you want to be adding that into a piece of written content, whereas yeah. there's no way that can can bring that into it because it's going to bring, I guess, I would expect the kind of mass market opinion what else is out there on, on any given subject. Yes, completely. Albeit it says it can machine learn over time. So in the sense of it almost gets to know your tone of voice or so with the edits you make to it or some of the things, some of the adaptions you make in post uh, AI it, it, it effectively learns your tone of voice and can get better over time the more you write through it as well hmm. um, so it's, I guess it's something to have a look into if you've not come across it before I don't think it's the death of the copywriter I don't think anybody has anything to fear yet in terms of their future career path particularly in B2B where some of the um, well, a lot of the copy can be far more technical in nature I guess rather than just generic mm-hmm. macro trends we're seeing but it's certainly something interesting I think, but I've enjoyed playing with it this week yeah. what have you got on your list Ollie where do you want to take it so just one um, subject that I think we we always hear about and we always talk to clients about, I suppose, is, is thought leadership, mm-hmm. which um, I, I guess really in, in recent months, I feel like I've heard a little bit of negative backlash against, I guess it's more against the term itself. Um, so when I came across an article the other day that was talking about um, thought leadership and the origins of thought leadership, I just thought that was quite interesting and a point to, to bear in mind, if nothing else, if you are hearing any negative backlash against it or you want kind of reassurance or direction in what you're doing with it. Um, and that is, well, the article is basically saying thought leadership is a synonym for attention. Yeah. And talking about how the origins of it is apparently, basically that thought leadership was, was a, a term used to apply when you had a business idea that merited attention. Mm-hmm. And I just think when you start thinking about it in that, context 
it's quite different. I think when we when we think thought leadership, it's easy to start running after what should we talk about, what will people like. But I think when you get to the core of the idea, which is that it's having a, an idea that merits attention, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to think that that puts a bit a bit of a different spin on what what kind of ideas you might come up with when it comes to actually creating yeah. content. I think it should definitely be a qualifying criteria for it. Because I think we hear it a lot in terms of objectives, and I think we've heard it a lot, maybe even more recently, which might be brought to the forefront more post-pandemic for people doing events and virtual events a lot of the events are actually the objectives were built to positioning themselves as as a thought leader that isn't always backed up by the quality of the content yeah. and the quality of the consideration that goes into whatever they are presenting it's similar to um when i was looking at um at doing ad campaigns and things like that in the past then you'd often hear uh, like clients sort of say oh yeah we want people to be clicking this we want people to visit that and you have to start thinking about why why are you wanting them to do that? They're not going to do it because of just because of the sake of it, because you asked them to. Mm-hmm. And the the concept we came to there was: what are you offering? What is the offer that you're giving to anybody that sees your ad that makes them want to click? It's not about I've got a nice product and you should buy it. It's about what are you offering to them? So whether that is that your product solves a problem for them, or whether it's about it's a piece of content that solves a knowledge gap that they have at the moment, whatever it might be. But it's it's putting that context of it's not about me, it's about what we have to offer. And I think this is kind of a similar vein of it's thinking to the core of why you're doing thought leadership. It's not because you want to be a thought leader. It's because you have something that really merits some kind of attention, whether you've got an amazing product, whether you've done a load of scientific research that's pushing boundaries forward, whatever else it might be. It's just about sharing something because it's noteworthy and deserves to be shared, mm-hmm. not just because you've heard content thought leadership is a trend that you should be following right now. I think, yeah, I totally agree. I think I think marketing in general, you see a lot of buzzwords and phrases go in and out of fashion quite yeah. commonly. I don't think thought leadership is going anywhere because I think it, it's one of the core areas that a lot of B2B uh, businesses and brands and marketing practitioners want to be uh, seen to be experts in. But I agree with you. I think it's more around flipping the argument of, removing the arrogance or perceived arrogance away from thought leadership yeah. that it's not about ego and it's not about look at me how much do i know and it's not about following a marketing term or trend it's about no. it's about what sits behind that yeah but so, i think when you when you wind it back and you strip it back to less forget this right way around in my own mind less inside out so less about me and less about what i how good i am and what a great uh, b2b marketer i mean you should listen to me because i'm a thought leader much more towards outside in the pain points that the the stakeholder, the customer, the supplier, whoever it is you're trying to reach to and be, be perceived as a thought leader towards. I don't think it alters or is any different to any any many other strategies you say about what, what are you offering that helps them. So yeah. what were the pain point that they've got? What are you bringing to the table in terms of thought leadership that helps them address and hopefully negate the pain points that they're having? I don't think thought leadership's a problem. I don't think it's a poor term. I think it's got to be applied yeah. correctly. No, I 100% agree with that. Like you say, I don't think it's going anywhere. And if we flip that from we keep doing it as, as marketers and that our clients keep doing it, everybody in the space is doing it, to what buyers want. Buyers do continue to want content. They continue to consume content and they do much more of that themselves these days, as we know, prior to even engaging in a buying journey. The content's valuable and, and purposeful. But it's just, I thought it was interesting uh, to keep in mind if you do hear any backlash against the term itself, forget the term, mm-hmm. think about what you're actually trying to achieve, which is yeah, sharing things that are actually worth sharing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think when we were reflecting on it um, a few days ago in terms of thought leadership, it used to be termed voice of authority quite a lot. You'd hear a lot in the B2B space, I think, as well, which again has that tone of arrogance to it. 
but you can be a voice of authority and you can be a thought leader, but you've got to constantly keep evolving and keep bringing to the table what are the pain points, how do you address them, what are the pain points, how do you address them, and be seen as being that, I guess, that helper rather than a thought leader. And ultimately, I go back to old school sales, really, then about like know, like, and trust. So they've got to know you, they've got to like you and grow to like you over time with the more you help them. And then that builds that trust, which arguably is what pe- most people are looking for for being seen as a thought leader. Yeah. that people that trust them and then will engage with them to buy their products or services. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a long process behind it. And I think the la- the lazy argument is, yes, I want to be positioned as a thought leader at my virtual event. You're like, okay. Yeah. Then you see the PowerPoint they're going to present and you think this isn't this yeah. isn't the right way to well, go about it. you see the 200-word blog that adds no value, no unique take on things. And it's just like, okay, well, I scam, skim read that in, in 30 seconds and that's a lot of rubbish. It's amazing how many things come back to the quality of content these days, isn't it, in terms of... Um, everything tends to anchor back to unless you're putting something of quality out there re- re- rethink what you're doing yeah. um, particularly when you're trying to cut through the, the noise and so on yeah, exactly. I, I guess talking about cutting through noise see that a lovely link I've done there to um, there was an article that caught your eye in terms of like landing page observations and I'll, I'll say optimization. but yeah so I think this is it's always a, a subject that's kind of dear to me just because of my background coming from uh, a primarily focusing around digital marketing, a lot of digital advertising being part of that. And in the past, we always saw a lot of clients putting budget into into running ad campaigns. And there was always a lot less focus and emphasis put on having a good landing page off the back of it. I think it was more like if the information's on the landing page, that's great. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of of things that can be done to optimize landing pages to the point where I think in in the past, sort of going back five years ago, I think it was quite common for us at least to see clients have a landing page on the website that might have a 1% conversion rate. Okay. Whereas nowadays, it's much more typical that we'll have kind of a dedicated landing page that's been created either on their website or their marketing automation platform or that we've created for them on our platform. And they'll, they'll often be converting significantly better. You know, you're sort of talking 10% plus yep. uh, conversion rates for a landing page, which when you start thinking about the ad spend that's going into some of these campaigns, going from 1% to 10% is Huge. the equivalent of spending 10 times more ad uh, ad spend but the cost is significantly lower I think that's that. what made it echo with me with your commercial hat on and your finance hat on to an extent of sometimes particularly in large B2B corporations I think you can see people throwing more money at the problem or you know well, well, would it help Would it help if we put more budget into the campaign I've heard that phrase on numerous occasions over yeah. the years whereas what you're saying is no kind of yeah Exactly. Well, there's barriers to it in terms of landing page optimization that we often hear from clients, which is like, oh, the, the, we want the landing pages on our website for whatever reason. We want to keep yeah. them central. These are the templates we've got to work with. Or if we need a new template uh, created, we need to develop that separately and that's going to take time. Um, and, and those sort of barriers, I understand them, but they're, they're primarily, they don't have a good reason to exist other no. than maybe there's a central IT reason that you want to try and keep things yeah. together. But all you're really doing is, is, you know, massively inflating the cost and your ability to be agile when it comes to deploying and optimizing landing page templates. Whereas we often work with tools like Instapage, which is a landing page building tool. It's, it means that you can quickly and easily build pages. It's quite drag and drop, but um, you can obviously still do some, some quite nice things from a design point of view and, mm-hmm. and uh, roll them out to landing pages. The great thing about those is that it's much more cost effective to build a page. And when it comes to updating the page a month or two months or three months into a campaign, you don't need to go and contract a developer to to get that all updated. Yeah. That's something that anybody can log in, whether that's somebody that's marketing in-house for a client or whether that's somebody that's kind of working in our team. Somebody can log in that 
and just make some small tweaks themselves. There's so almost more flexibility around yeah. the optimization of it. But I guess I, we see it with a lot of our clients, as you, had, as you said, that they're almost prohibited from using an external software because they've invested so much in a tech stack or an automation suite or a CRM system or whatever it may be that, that controls their kind of stack. Is that... Is that is that the how do you get around that then? Is it, is it a case of encouraging clients to invest in more, be more agile, more template creation? I think it or? depends very much on, on the client's specific setup. But one thing I'd say is like when we're talking about having a landing page built on your website, your website has been built for a purpose, and, and you typically know with a website, it's probably not going to change too often. Yeah, that means it's it's probably not the best tool to be your landing page mm-hmm. area. Yeah, because you don't want to be creating new templates constantly. A marketing automation system is a bit different. I think there's a good reason for landing pages to live in there. It can result in more personalization, more of a tailored experience. Mm-hmm. But then you do need to approach any any landing page templates that you build in that type of solution, whether it's a Pardot or a Marketo or whatever else it might be. Mm-hmm. You need to build them with some level of flexibility and agility in mind, building com- building them in like component-based uh, yeah. approach. And bearing in mind, you probably should have some kind of retained um, design and development support there to, to make updates so you're not just stuck using the same templates. Yeah, you do hear that a lot from clients that you sometimes have people in the wider industry, but they've, they've got their two or three templates they can pick from which have been designed when the system was first set up. Yeah. And, and particularly almost. what we've seen sometimes is that those are uh, designed at a corporate level, not considering the various different business groups that, yeah. are, that then have to start be stuck with them and roll them out. And if you're using something that's not for, for purpose, it's just not going to work as well. So would you rather spend, let's say, 2,000 euros getting a new template that's fit for purpose for a yep. campaign, or would you rather spend 20,000 euros instead of 10,000 euros when it comes to rolling out that ad campaign? Yeah. And I just think that's, it's, it's something that I'm really genuinely passionate about is just let's try and optimize pages more. And well, I think and, particularly when you're talking around increased return on investment, pressure on marketing budgets, and people having to justify the impact that their spend is, is having and generating, surely these kind of considerations should be at the forefront. And I think often, I think a lot of our team and your frustration can anchor back to if we don't control the landing page, we can we can have a fantastic campaign that's running for a client with a great um, great copy, a great concept that's putting a lot of traffic their way. Um, but yeah, it's kind of wasted to an extent yeah. if, they, if they then hit a landing page, which is completely... And I can say defunct. being on, on the kind of advertising side of that it's kind of heartbreaking because you, you can be you know the average link is in click-through rate is something around like 0.3 percent 0.5 percent and you can be driving a campaign to to you know deliver 1.5 percent traffic in some cases and you can feel really great about that it's like we've done an amazing job of hitting hitting something that's obviously resonating with people but then they hit this old style page it can't be updated no flexibility in it and everything just falls down. You don't get any conversions or you get very few conversions and there can be a whole myriad of issues there. That just means it's like you don't, even though you've done everything you can do, you just don't leave that with a feeling of we're not, we're not, the actual outcome that we're delivering off the back of everything isn't what you want to be delivering to a client. And putting myself in the client shoes on, on that, if you said to me, well, we've fourth order traffic your way, I'd say, I don't, don't believe you're the landing page optimization can't be the issue it must be something else that's causing it what kind of things when we're talking about landing page optimization or improvements that can be made i appreciate there's a lot but was there anything particularly in the article or the topic that you saw that kind of they pulled out that surprised you maybe or 
Um, yeah, so I think there's there's one example that I'll use, which isn't listed in the article that I found, um, which we just see as, as quite a common issue, and that's around like placement of forms. Okay. So we've seen like having a very clearly visible placed form that's near the top of the page instead of located to the bottom of the page will result in much better converting landing pages. Okay. And I think we've seen that uh, across you know a myriad of our clients now to know that that's in general, obviously everybody's different, but in general, that's something we should be able to take as a given. Mm-hmm. But then there's a few interesting things that are, I guess, more recent trends in um, in this article that I think would be really interesting for us to, to look at trying out going forward. So one example found that, you know, a landing page on average apparently has about 500 words of copy. Okay. And, and this example basically found that uh, within a study that having 100 words or fewer actually resulted in a significantly higher conversion rate, sort of converting 50% better than, than page 500 words of copy. Now, clearly there's questions in here about is our, is our proposition too complex to get across what we're trying to communicate in that many words or not? But um, it, it's certainly something to bear in mind and, and potentially experiment with because these are things, if you've got the right systems in place, you should be able to A-B test and, and see for yourselves yeah. which is converting better. And then I suppose very important off the back of that is not only which is converting better, but what's the quality of those conversions. Mm-hmm. If you're converting better, but you realize that everybody that's, that's actually converting on the lower uh, number of keyword landing page doesn't really understand it or doesn't quite understand what they've filled in their details yeah. for, that's a problem. But if, ever, if you've seen the quality of those is relatively similar, then uh, but the conversion rate on one is a lot higher, then you've clearly got a really success. Does it depend on where the buyer is in the buying cycle and their own journey and so on as well? Because if they're looking to be educated further, obviously maybe you know more comprehensive copy may, may serve its purpose. But I guess when you do click through to a landing page, I've seen people throw the kitchen sink at them where they're, they're huge. And I think oh, we, yeah. we've probably come across with that in the past, right? trying to fit too much in. Yeah, And that's one of the points on here as well is about video, which is that landing pages with video on convert worse. And I think, you know, in the past, there's certainly been times that we've been like put videos on landing pages thinking that this is helping to communicate the message. Mm-hmm. It's telling you something concisely. But, you know, I don't know the length of each video is, is obviously going to vary, but you're asking somebody to spend one, two minutes watching a video on a landing page. By the time they are partway through it, I think there's probably a reasonable chance they're a bit bored and they might lose interest in the whole subject. Yeah. So conversely, just showing them uh, a few sections on a page where they can quickly skim read it, ascertain for themselves if they're interested, and then fill in a form and they'll find out more when they either receive that follow-up contact or when they receive the document, whatever it is they're filling in the form for. Okay. Might be a, a better way forward, but obviously all these things need to be tested and it can vary client to client audience to audience but I just thought those those two in particular were really interesting points no 100% I guess and I guess if you are a client or prospects out there working on camp, digital campaigns or amplification I guess the message really is there isn't a one size fits all for a landing page so depending on each individual campaign and what your objectives are but there's certainly some tips and tricks in there as well that seem yeah. to or appear to have a much better conversion than others I guess so yeah so link, link to that and the <coughs> one we'll finish off on today um, that I think has caught both our eye but I think the uh the various topics and, uh, and blogs we've read recently have brought it more to the forefront again. So you finally got somebody to your website thinking about your campaign being a success or your landing page or whatever it may be. Um, and a lot of articles are calling it death of the third party cookie. Do, yeah. you, do you want to go, go first being, being our head of tech and digital to explain what we mean by that? Yeah. So uh, hopefully everybody listening to this is, is at least somewhat aware that cookies exist mm-hmm. and you've got, I think typically first party cookies and third party cookies. So first party cookies are those that, that are basically owned by you and the site and third party cookies are the ones that are 
gathering data and information for so to, to, a, le- to a layman like myself as I call myself in these situations the the first party cookie is more around if you go on to Amazon or something like that it remembers your passwords it remembers your yeah, history it's exactly. got all the details in it all that kind of thing isn't it yeah the third party cookies are going to be those external providers that might be tracking visitors and data to your website yeah so um, Google Chrome um, obviously one of the one of the biggest browsers globally I think they own over 50% of the market share globally but I know from from looking at stats uh, for some of our audiences uh, I think particularly kind of in Europe mm-hmm. uh, and in, in North America it's often sort of a, an 80% plus market share browser I think that's where we're at in the UK the last time I checked anyway yeah um, so it's a pretty significant move for them to say that they're planning to to block third-party cookies so that they were originally supposed to be doing this from 2022 but they've actually delayed it to 2023 which mm-hmm. gives marketers more time to prepare but that has some potentially fairly big ramifications in how personalized adverts are able to be to you so yeah. at the minute there's obviously things uh, that you can do in terms of you know targeting people based on intent targeting people based on the kind of persona that they they yeah. have uh, their demographics targeting based on websites that they've been to all of that has the potential to become um, impossible uh, or largely impossible going forward with Google Chrome looking to make that move. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is, is things like remarketing are also likely to be affected. So yeah. that's obviously um, you know, been a fairly big um, aspect of advertising for people, I think, for sort of the la- at least the last sort of 10 years or so, understanding that we can market to people specifically that have already been to our website once using mm-hmm. third-party services like Facebook, Twitter, Google, whatever it might be. Um, and that has the potential to kind of all go out the window going forward. So, but then am I right in saying that Safari and Firefox did this some time ago in terms of well, removing the third-party cookies from their browsers? I honestly can't say for those two. To be honest with you, I think I think, I think, I think they did. I think that they they've gone for some time. So I think to an extent, Google and Chrome are late to the party to get them removed but obviously there's much wider consequences because yeah. of the usages yeah there obviously as, as well as the smaller browsers that have gone down much more privacy focused routes for years so yeah. certainly google aren't a pioneer in this area no. i just think they're the one that are going to have the actual impact that make a difference but the drop the drop what are the driving forces behind this privacy i assume and, yeah. and the increased and i think we've seen that certainly over the last well, obviously, the cookie laws came into place as they stand right now. I think it was in 2011. GDPR came into place. I don't know how long ago now because it all feels like the pandemic's changed my perception of time. But what, 2017, 2018, sometime around there. Yeah. So the, there has been this trend towards privacy. And I think we're seeing more of that. I think we, I can't remember if we touched on this in last week's podcast. Mm-hmm. But that's certainly a big aspect of what could be driving Web, point, uh, Web 3.0 going forward in yeah. terms of that, that desire for privacy, that desire for corporations. I think corporations like Facebook have got... A, you know, a lot of negative press around yeah. the whole Cambridge and Analytica scandal that mean that there is this drive for privacy and people don't really want to be tracked and they don't want to be targeted and they don't want their tailored advertising to be to be able to reach them. Yeah. So I think that's just part of that, that wider trend that I suspect we're going to see as something that just keeps happening and, you know, continues going forward. And is it likely to be, are they making this move before it becomes law or physical regulation do you think in terms of do you think that's the direction we're heading in now that it's going to be almost a privacy first approach to these kind of areas yeah but uh, potentially i mean i suppose they've not heard of any regulation in process that that um, would mandate it but i think again we've seen regulation coming in so it doesn't mean that we're not five years off this becoming law anyway yeah um, but I suppose that just leaves us as marketers going, well, what, what should we do in the in the meantime? How do we make sure we prepare? And I guess one of the main things to do is, is make sure that you're 
you're taking care of your first party data, that you're, you're making sure that you're, you know, when you are capturing data, obviously making sure that you're capturing it in a GDR, a GDPR, <laughs> GDPR compliant manner so that you can continue to market to it going forward and, and making sure that you basically got all the best practices that you can there so that mm-hmm. you are best prepared for when the other tap might potentially shut off. Yeah. yeah. I think we saw a lot of people being very proactive when GDPR hit anyway. So in terms of dumping all old data, so that that mindset is certainly already embedded with, with some companies. But I, just I, assume, have, I assume you're going to see, let's say Google, Safari, Firefox, I have no idea what percentage they make up, but let's say the bulk, the bulk of um, browser kind of traffic these days. Is this an opportunity for other people within the tech stack? Because I assume other people will have similar technology that can layer on top of them just because Google aren't doing it. Is there going to be other providers or other software stacks that maybe well, will fill the shoes? So well, there's obviously time will tell what comes in, but I know what Google are effectively not wanting to eliminate this type of activity entirely, but they, they want to make it so that you're not necessarily targeting an individual, but you're more targeting groups that you okay. individuals are part of. Yeah. Um, so there's there's that aspect. There's obviously platforms like LinkedIn, which aren't dependent on having um, having cookies tracked to be able to advertise to people because people have effectively given all their details away when they when they sign up for it. Mm-hmm. They basically filled their their CV out online. So from that point of view, those channels will continuing to continue to exist. And new channels are obviously de- like evolving all the time, where people are giving their data to the platforms to be able to advertise within platforms. So whatever data you give to TikTok will be available advertise to within TikTok. Okay. I think it's more just that wider um, marketing landscape that's getting more of a shakeup. So the, the wider display advertising uh, ecosystem where it's not dependent on, on LinkedIn's data and, or so on to, uh, to actually run your campaigns. So I guess okay, so watch this space again as it develops over the next 12, 18 months really as we move towards the death of a third party cookie with by Google. Yeah, and don't be surprised if there's more and more things like this that happen over over the coming years. So it's it's worth keeping an eye out for it and, and preparing as much as you can early. Well, I think hopefully that should be the, the idea of these kind of topics in terms of the B2B impact. So these kind of episodes, we're looking to round up news articles, trends and topics that we think are of relevance to you and your wider audiences. So we'll continue with this in the future weeks. But thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you next week on the B2B impact. Thanks.